This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis. This is episode 62, and this week we are in conversation with Andrew Rudd. Uh, Now, Andrew is a senior lecturer in the English department at the University of Exeter, and one of his particular areas of expertise um, is charity representations of charity in literature. Um, and that's what we were talking about today. So basically kind of how charity uh, occurs in literature and the ways in which it's represented and what we can potentially learn from it. So we had a good wide ranging chat about that. And I certainly learnt um, lots of new references to interesting bits of poetry and literature that I will be taking away from from the conversation. Um, but we we talk first about sort of who are some of the big authors um, in literature who have written about charity issues. So um, we mentioned them throughout the podcast, but people like uh, Dickens, um, particularly books like Bleak House and also uh, suitably for the time of year, A Christmas Carol, which comes up in our conversation. But also Jane Austen, Mary Wollstonecraft, uh, Wordsworth, Blake. Uh, and others, as as you'll hear. Um, then we went on and talked about what some of the, the main themes that they cover in that work are, both kind of positive themes and critical. Um, we also discussed the importance um, that literature could potentially have in terms of providing archetypes to, to kind of explain or bring home uh, bigger picture points about issues to do with philanthropy um, to, to people in a way that might make more sense to them. Um, we came on to talk about some of the the important themes that that have turned up in literature. So things that remain very relevant today, for instance, the tension between seeking charity on the one hand and demanding justice on the other, or kind of seeing individual acts of charity as worthwhile in their own right or insufficient because they fail to address the sort of underlying causes or the need for structural change, which is very much a live debate at the moment. Um, we also talked about things like the tension between uh, kind of rationality and empathy or head and heart in philanthropy. Some of the concerns there had been about indiscriminate charity throughout history and how those were reflected in, in literature. Then we also talked, um, because Andrew, as you'll, as you'll hear in the, the conversation, uh, has had a life outside academia, working uh, particularly for the Charity Commission for England and Wales um, uh, in their policy team, parliamentary team. Um, talked about kind of how literature had informed uh, his experience while working in the sector and conversely kind of how his experience in the sector had then informed the way he looked at literature when he went back into academia and got some thoughts on kind of what how he thought literature could help to inform uh, practitioners and also kind of how it could potentially play more into the wider academic study of philanthropy um, and then some some thoughts about kind of how practitioners might go about uh, finding literature that's relevant and bringing it into their work um, so I hope you find the conversation interesting um, without further ado let's go into it and I will be back at the end uh, with a bit of housekeeping okay <music> 
Okay, great. So I'm here with Andrew Rudd. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Uh, And Andrew is a senior lecturer in the English department at the University of of Exeter and an expert in sort of representations of charity in in literature. Um, But maybe the best place to start is for you to say a bit in your own words, Andrew, about kind of where you come to some of these issues and what your background and your academic interests are. Oh, thanks, Rodri, and thanks for inviting me uh, to do this. Um, yeah, for a number of years, um, I've taught um, English literature at the University of Exeter. Um, I tend to concentrate on 18th century and Romantic period literature, um, as we shall see. Um, and I'm currently working on a study of representations of charity um, in that period. Um, so representations uh, mostly in literature, but also um, in visual culture as well. And it's not a complete coincidence that I came to this topic, uh, because before joining Exeter, um, I worked outside academia um, for some years um, at the Charity Commission for England and Wales, um, where I was the parliamentary manager. Uh, And it's really there um, that I sort of discovered the interest and potential of this particular topic. Um, So my academic work now um, is something of an attempt to sort of put those two parts of my career together. Um, and just, just sort of picking up on, on that bit first. So obviously, you kind of had an academic background um, in English and then had, had ended up working outside at the Charity Commission for, for England and Wales. Did did you sort of decide to go back into academia and at that point decide to bring some of what you you learned about charity with you? Or had you started to find that there were things that you were aware of from your knowledge of the literature that were that were kind of useful or informative in, in the work you were doing with, with charities? Um, a bit of both, really. Um, and I think my, my sort of interest in uh, the history of charity as a topic uh, was certainly piqued uh, while I worked at the Charity Commission, which actually had a surprisingly large um, uh, uh, amount of emphasis, really, on the history Um, The immediate reason for moving back was that I managed to publish uh, a book, um, the book of my PhD, which was actually on a slightly different topic um, altogether. Um, But then I sort of switched back to this idea of sort of writing my my next book, which is what I'm doing now, um, about charity, drawing on the background of my previous career. So it's all been gathering steam from there, really. Excellent. Um, and I guess, I mean, there's all sorts of things I'd, I'd like to come on and talk about, about sort of specific themes that turn up in the literature and how those perhaps relate to, to issues that are going on now. But maybe as a, as a kind of starting point for people listening, you know, which famous authors and, and poets and other cultural figures that they might have heard of have kind of notably written about charity or charity issues? Um, well, a great many, really. I think it's a, it's a topic people have always um, um, written about um, from medieval literature onwards. Um, if we're thinking about sort of big names, um, certainly um, Daniel Defoe at the re- very beginning of the uh, 18th century was very interested in charity and both wrote about it in literary works. And he also came up with actual projects which were supposed to affect uh, public policy on pauperism, vagrancy and so forth. Um, Jane Austen uh, writes about charity quite a bit, um, as I can say a little bit more about as we go on. Um, Many of the characters in the stately homes that make up the world of Jane Austen's novels are often out uh, making charitable visits to needy people in the surrounding area, and and Jane Austen uses that to uh, reflect principally on the personality of her characters. 
the attitude towards charity shows quite a lot. Um, Charles Dickens is the really big name from the 19th century. Um, Dickens, like Defoe, was somebody who wrote about charity in his fiction, but was also very, very active indeed in promoting, in promoting the charitable movement um, through the 19th century. I think his involvement there um, is, is quite well known. Um, and uh, various sort of 19th century novelists writing on the condition of England um, uh, are also uh, involved in, in that sort of effort. Um, and then we have sort of more uh, modern um, fiction um, and poetry um, in the work of sort of um, Updike. And I've got a, just got a Tom Gunn uh, poem here, St. Martin and the Beggar, uh, which is a sort of contemporary scene of charity linking back to its... Um, spiritual origins. So the whole thing joins up, really, if you look across literary history uh, as a whole. Excellent. And what, I mean, in the work of those authors and, and others, are there kind of clear key themes that, that we can identify? Um, perhaps, for, first of all, maybe thinking about sort of positive things that they've said about charity, because I'm sure we can come on to some critical themes. Yeah, there are both positive and critical themes. Um, and I think the, the the main positive theme that emerges is I'd call it the need for kindness. Um, I think that that's the big theme that emerges from um, Dickens. Uh, there's always some tension. In fact, one of the key tensions um, in, in, in the literature, also one that we see in the contemporary debate about charity and philanthropy today, um, the tension is between the need for individual acts of kindness, that um, as a human being, it is a good thing that you spontaneously act kindly and charitably towards people you meet who are in need. And that's, that's one very, very large theme of, of, of the literature. There are many, many examples of that. Um, and also the feeling that um, those sorts of actions are subjective, uh, may be random, may be whimsical, uh, and may distract from more systematic efforts to reform society and improve the world. Um, and there are sort of many examples um, of, of that as well. And I, I think that tension is very, very close to the debate that we still have uh, um, going on today about whether sort of whether charity acts and philanthropy act as a sort of distraction from structural reform of our world, um, or whether it is a necessary, good, and morally improving thing in itself. And literature always literature always sort of teeters between those two positions, as I think the contemporary policy debate. Um, about social reform versus, in inverted commas, charity and philanthropy does today. So there's a very, very long history of that tension. Which I think is, which goes to a point I'm sure we'll make many times during this conversation, that that actually a lot of these uh, debates that are currently dominating people's attention, even if there are new aspects to them, actually many of the elements are, reflect things that people have been grappling with for a very long time through art and, and literature and within charity itself because they they represent something sort of fairly inherent or a tension in the middle of the the idea of of charity um on this question here you were saying about you know whether whether charity stands in sort of opposition to justice or, or structural reform here um i know this is something i kind of i'm involved in in lots of conversations about at the moment and i always like to look for uh historical and, and literary sources and i i wasn't actually aware until i came across fairly recently that this was something 
um, Mary Wilsoncraft, I think, wrote about. Um, and I think that's that's some something that you've kind of touched on in your work as well. Yeah, well, it's interesting. And, and forgive me for you know invoking your own um, work at the conference recently. You had a, fan- a fascinating Martin Luther King um, quotation about philanthropy should never cause us to overlook the economic circumstances that make philanthropy necessary. Um, and there's, there's a famous quotation from Mary Wollstonecraft, which, which more or less says the same thing. Um, this is from one of her vindications. Um, and the quotation is, it is justice, not charity, that is wanting in the world. Um, which is a very interesting and rather uh, challenging line, I think, um, which is to say that if we're going to improve the situation we find ourselves in with all its sort of uh, unfairnesses and injustice, it's not um, the charitable side of human affairs that we should be sort of working on. It's advancing sort of justice, something more impartial, something more structural, something more systematic uh, that applies across the board. Um, and Mary Wollstonecraft is actually one of the most critical voices of, of what I call traditional charity. That is sort of ad hoc alms giving, just giving out food and money to people as you meet them in the course of your daily life. Um, and she's very, very strongly in favour of philosophically informed reform of society as a whole um, in an attempt, I think she would put it, to make charity unnecessary. So if you get the justice side of it right, um, personal charity is no longer necessary because you've fixed the causes. That's Wollstonecraft's position, and it's quite a strong one, actually. It's really interesting because, I mean, it absolutely echoes, as you say, the the quote that I, you know, that I uh, flagged up from Martin Luther King, which I'm, I'm sure many, many other people have heard before, but also... Um, the um, the Ford Foundation recently, very recently, brought out a book that Darren Walker um, has sort of uh, pulled together with uh, conversations with various kind of notable figures in US philanthropy, it, precisely around the theme of shifting from generosity to justice. So it's certainly not a new idea. Going go, going back to Wollstonecraft, I was just wondering when you were talking there, was what was the sort of reception to her ideas at the time? Because it strikes me that that comes certainly well before the the Victorian period of when philanthropy seemed to be very much accepted and in the ascendancy. So w- was she sort of seen as too radical in her time or, or does, does this sort of thing shift backwards and forwards? I think she was seen as too radical, yes. Um, I, Mary Wollstonecraft was a, a radical trailblazer in, in many respects, um, including in her attitude to charity. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft was writing at the end of the 18th century, um, the, the sort of 1780s and 90s, when charity was really, really being scrutinised as never before, because social conditions in Britain were seen to be worsening. And the old way of thinking that charity was enough to keep the poor and needy um, alive and functioning uh, was being challenged uh, by more radical solutions, including Wollstonecraft's. Um, And there was a counter-narrative put to radicals such as herself, which was that this this sort of philosophical, um, um, high-minded philanthropy that wanted to fix injustice in a systematic way um, was itself actually impossible and unrealisable and led to uh, the plight of the poor and needy actually being overlooked in practice 
Um, that, that was the counter-narrative. Um, and thinkers such as Mary Wollstonecraft um, and fellow radical reformers who were fairly or unfairly associated with the, um, the cause of the French Revolution were often criticised for, as it were, embracing a form of reform that was sort of philosophically pure, uh, but practically uh, rather callous because it sort of discouraged people from actually giving food and money to people who needed it um, in favour of making grand speeches and striking attitudes. That was the argument against it. So there was, a, there was quite a culture war that raged over um, charity and philanthropy towards the end of the 18th century, which is something that I look at sort of particularly closely in my own work. I, I think that's fascinating, and particularly that idea of um, well, th- that it became something of a culture war, and and actually that the battleground was one between idealism and and pragmatism on the extremes. Because I think I that think so, that, yes. that is absolutely the situation at the moment. I think where there are some very perfectly justifiable critiques of philanthropy, but I think some people are espousing them and drawing the conclusion that that the sort of end goal therefore is to to essentially give up on philanthropy whereas others might yes. point out that even if you agree with the critiques the reality is there are symptoms that need addressing in the here and now even if you seek longer term structural reform so um again it's fascinating to hear that this was happening hundreds of years ago and then you get and then you move on um you move on from Wollstonecraft to a figure like um Dickens um, and this is one of the, the passages from literature that I really would recommend uh, practitioners pay close attention to, because, again, it, it prefigures a lot of the arguments about ch- whether charity should begin at home um, and the extent where exactly you should direct your philanthropic efforts, uh, whether you should direct them to uh, the people who are around you and your immediate uh, surroundings, or whether it's OK, so to speak, to raise a lot of money for causes Um, on behalf of people who are far away, that are distant, that are somehow abstracted from you, Um, and and whether there is any tension between those two ideas of exactly where you should be focusing your efforts. And the the text in question is a chapter from um, arguably Dickens' greatest novel, Bleak House, and the chapter is actually entitled um, Telescopic Philanthropy, which is supposed to introduce this idea of a philanthropy um, so preoccupied by people in need that you see through a telescope far away, as it were, that they completely overlook the people who need their care and attention immediately at hand. And the character in question, one of of Dickens' great characters, is the philanthropist Mrs. Jellyby, um, who lives in squalor in her house with children and servants running amok. The place is absolutely filthy and she's completely preoccupied by uh, raising money on behalf of um, African tribes um, in Niger. And this is telescopic philanthropy because it falls. She keeps going on about this. She's always meeting committees. She's always raising money. She spends all of her husband's money on these causes. Um, and the joke so to speak, is that um, her own children, the people who actually need her in the here and now, um, are suffering 
and it falls to other characters in the novel um, to look after her children and provide for them, because otherwise I think she would just leave them to starve. So telescopic philanthropy um, is, is Dickens' way of trying to encourage people to um, focus their efforts on the community immediately around them um, and not be, dis not be distracted by grand overseas international aid efforts, which distract much needed resources. So that concept of telescopic philanthropy is still a live one, I would say. It, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I always find this this idea fascinating because, in a way, um, it's a you can see where the critique comes from. And I guess it was uh, Dickens writing at a time and a lot of uh, philanthropy was sort of evangelically driven and therefore um, given to sort of religious missions overseas. And and from what I remember, he in both in in Bleak House and in other writings seems to almost critique that as if it's taking the easy option because it's much easier to kind of deal slightly at arm's length with the problems of people who aren't very much like you rather than face up to the reality of the the challenges that are there sort of right next door to you or on the, the streets around you um, and that seems to me still a very I mean quite a stinging critique and and in a modern context perhaps uncomfortable because in some ways it, it's sort of interpreting what Dickens is saying in relation to things like the responsibilities of international aid is is quite quite difficult i think in some ways it is and it, and it really i was always thinking of dickens and telescopic philanthropy when um I know at, at the charity commission there was always a recurrent argument about what the department for international development and the uk government should be doing you know whether there were there were calls on one hand to abolish it um, and take all of its, and, and there were many criticisms of, of DFID and suggestions that its sort of projects were wasteful and spurious, and, and, and there was, it was it wasn't right to be spending taxpayers' money on aid for people and projects far away when there was work to do domestically, and it was it was exactly that same argument. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things as well that I'd want to pick up on, because you've mentioned Mrs. Jellybee there, which she seems the one of the best examples that I've, that I've come across of a kind of a character that represents an archetype that says something about philanthropy. And it, it feels to me like this is this is something that philanthropy really lacks, because often when you're making the points, you end up sort of making them through essays or you know god forbid dry policy papers and this sort of thing and it's it's very hard to make those points stick whereas i think often one well-drawn character in literature or fiction that makes a point sticks with people culturally so much longer and has much more of an effect Ap apart from mrs jellyby do you think there are any other characters that that act as reference points for sort of important themes about about charity um, yeah, I think there are. And actually, what, what you've just said there brings us on to something quite fundamental about sort of what, what literature, um, <clears throat> what artistic representation can, can bring to the debate. As the other, the opposite pole from uh, Mrs. Jellyby, in, in sort of just thinking about the novels of, of Charles Dickens, if we just concentrate on them for a moment, are the, the, the Cratchits in uh, A Christmas Carol, who are often taken as, as Dickens' opposite paradigm of characters who do absolutely the right thing um, by demonstrating an instinct to care and look after people and give and show goodwill towards their, their fellow people. 
But this is what's so important about literature and arguably novels in particular. They're still fulfilling that very, very old traditional function of trying to encourage uh, trying to inform people how to live um, by showing characters behaving in particular ways, uh, by getting inside characters' heads, um, by providing uh, memorable um, um, figures that one can, whose behaviour one can imitate or reject. I think that the novel, with its sort of psychological um, interest, is particularly well tuned to um, um, dive very deeply indeed into the motives and challenges for charitable behaviour, which is one reason I think the study of um, charity in literature is, is potentially so important, because it, it shows you that psychology, it can expose um, hypocrisy, it can um, um, address some of the difficulties and barriers um, um, towards sort of charitable behaviour, um, and it can create um, sort of memorable stories by showing the transformative power of charity and otherwise. Um, so I think there really is there really is a lot to be gained by um, um, bringing the sort of the literary study of representations of charity um, into the sector itself. I think it sort of has very very valuable lessons. Um, and in Dickens, yeah, you can regard Jellyby on the one hand, and the Cratchits uh, on the other as sort of anti and pro philanthropy and charity figures to be imitated or avoided as the reader sees fit. Yeah, absolutely. I think your your point there about um, literature potentially being uh, almost uniquely pertinent to exploring issues around philanthropy makes me think that there's something about the fact that, that philanthropy is always slightly odd in that it's at one and the same time about kind of individuals and their free voluntary choices but also when looked at at scale is is about kind of a system for redistributing wealth and assets within society and those two perspectives are often quite hard to to square with one another whereas actually literature by by potentially exploring issues but through the lens of of the individual and therefore sort of bringing the psychological and and cultural elements into it whilst still exploring those issues i i do i mean i totally agree i think it could be an incredibly uh, you know very powerful tool for sort of making some of those points to people it, it could do yeah and there, there are many instances one one can single out um and one of the things i find Looking at um, Romantic period poetry, for example, the, the poetry of, of Wordsworth, um, is that Wordsworth is a figure who moves round from a position, a quite a critical position on, on charity, not that far removed from Mary Wollstonecraft's, to exploring the really, really interesting idea that sort of dwelling on literature can um, help to cultivate one's own behaviour, and even the holy grail for Wordsworth, I think, um, that a poem can cultivate charitable behaviour itself um, by reflecting on the words, reflecting on, on what's depicted. The reader's mind will be changed, the reader's feelings will be cultivated, um, and then maybe even some sort of charitable action will be stimulated. And the whole history of, of literature through the 18th century, um, leading up to the period when Wollstonecraft and Wordsworth was writing, um, was very, very preoccupied with how literature affected your feelings 
Um, the 18th century is often described as the age of sensibility or the age of sentiment. Uh, and a very, very large body of literature was, was concerned with trying to shape, guide, cultivate and improve the moral sentiments of the reader. And conversely, there was also a lot of criticism um, that, that readers, particularly supposedly susceptible female readers, might be adversely affected by what literature did to your feelings. But for the defenders of the novel, for the defenders of poetry, um, if the author got it right, um, the act of reading uh, would lead to um, um, uh, morally informed responses and, as I say, to actual charitable behaviour. Uh, there's a very, very fine Wordsworth poem um, published in 1800 um, called The Old Cumberland Beggar. Um, it's quite, a, again, quite a difficult and, and strange poem, but it basically describes uh, what happens when an old, very dishevelled, almost quite repellent beggar uh, wanders round uh, a local community, uh, wanders round a village, um, and people give him food and they give him money um, almost without thinking and they just look on him as a sort of mobile icon as he goes on his rounds about the village which are very very vividly described um, and Wordsworth presents him as a figure who is teaching the community habits of charity that's how that's how Wordsworth puts it just by the fact he goes around every day um, you look at him um, you give him something almost mechanically, um, you are improving yourself by this. You are learning a habit that is ingrained. Um, and I think Wordsworth and some other writers um, regard poetry and literature in much the same way, that as you look at it, you meditate on it, you learn from it, and then almost without thinking, you yourself might perform a charitable action. Now, of course, that's quite a challenging thing to say, because the idea of charity as a habit, um, something that you learn and do maybe even without thinking and without that much reflection, um, is not necessarily uh, the best way to act. But I found quite a lot of literature, particularly in the Romantic period, um, that, that focuses on this idea of cultivating a habit and that that's how charity should be. That's that's really interesting because when you was I can see the the importance of cultivating charity as a habit or generosity as a habit. But was there any sense within that in the Romantic period that the way in which you gave should also be informed by other? considerations of, of rationality or morality and I, I only ask because it, you know, from what I'm aware of of the Victorian era one of the major things that really bothered them was the idea that charity was indiscriminate or kind of poorly aimed and particularly that by giving to those in need who didn't genuinely deserve it you would actually make the problem worse by, worse by sort of perpetuating dependency and these sorts of things so it, it, did did that stem on from the romantic era, or is there actually a kind of a tension in those two views? Um, there is, there is, um, there is a ten that tension is there in romantic period actually, um, and including in this particular poem, um, which can be seen as uh, a direct rebuke 
to um, the work of uh, Jeremy Bentham, um, who sort of prefigured a lot of what you've just described, attempts to make um, philanthropy rational uh, and an attempt to um, take random acts of charity and put them on a much more systematic footing. Um, the Wordsworth poem is actually defending this individual figure and his sort of individual irreducible humanity from a system such as Bentham's, which was just being sort of rolled out at about exactly this time. And the poem has very beautiful lines. While from door to door this old man creeps, the villagers in him behold a record which together binds past deeds and offices of charity else unremembered, and so keeps alive the kindly mood in hearts which lapse of years and that half wisdom, half experience gives, makes slow to feel and by sure steps resign to selfishness and cold, oblivious cares. Those are the benefits of um, individual acts of charity towards this particular beggar. Um, and then later in the poem, um, there is a mock prayer that says that this figure should continue to walk his rounds, should continue to receive the uh, habits of care that the community have cultivated. Um, and then there's a direct reference to the sort of uh, policies that Bentham wants to introduce. May never house misnamed of industry make him a captive. Um, so there's a prayer that this figure is never going to be swept up into um, a house of industry, which were the early models for trying to make um, philanthropy rational by turning philanthropy into a system. Um, so this is the period really when the battle lines are being drawn, I think, uh, between traditional charity, which Wordsworth is portraying as a form of kindness, um, and utilitarian, rationalised charity, which was beginning to appear um, across Britain in the form of uh, workhouses, houses of industries, and nationwide um, policies, which were trying to tidy everything up, make charity more efficient, make it more cost effective, and make it more useful, um, as the, the, the defenders of that policy saw it. So yes, that tension is, is, is right here in this period. In fact, I think this is really where it has its origin in the late 18th century, early 19th century, this sort of um, battle line opening up between the romantic view of what charity should involve um, and the utilitarian um, systematic view, which led on into the 19th century and the Victorians and really continued um, in the debate between Dickens um, and other utilitarian and utilitarian thinkers. Which is, I, I think, fascinating, and and also, again, I mean, I think you, I mean, modified perhaps, but you see echoes of it today in some of the debate between movements like effective altruism and those who sort of push back on these these extremely sort of rigid metrics based approaches to to philanthropy that that uh, claim that they are the the only acceptable form, and you know, some people would argue, kind of downplay the importance of. Uh, the humanity within it and you know potentially at some cost so um, I think you know the sort of thing that it would be very informative for, for many people to to read these days. Mm, I think so yeah I was thinking of uh, effective altruism actually as you as uh, I was just sort of reading reading those lines um, which is it's very you know at, at, at a human at a human level it's actually a very very challenging system of thought isn't it because it's sort of I think as with uh, a lot of utilitarian philosophy when it was first rolled out, 
it sort of makes sense um, at a particular level. Uh, but if it doesn't have basic human kindness um, at its heart, um, it feels instinctively as if there's something lacking about it. It feels cold. Um, and so I think, yeah, we, we, we see that debate beginning to repeat itself with um, the, the pushback against the effective altruism movement, I think, which I see as effectively um, sort of um, utilitarianism in a modern guise. Uh, absolutely and i i would uh, i would agree on on that um and it, you're right it's sort of interesting i'm not i'm not sure whether i've seen the pushback so far couched in exactly the same terms as it might have been being couched in the work of the romantics that you've been highlighting because i'm not sure people would feel or many people would feel confident espousing exactly that viewpoint but i think there are certainly elements of of it that are that are being brought into the argument and partly, I think many many authors um, from all periods are really just they're concerned they're concerned that the motivation should be right. I think, um, and there uh, one um, theme in uh, literature that spans sort of um, um, hundreds of years, I think, is that you know the the act the act of charity without the accompanying feeling of compassion is somehow cold and empty. And literary scholars often invoke the um, division made by Raymond Williams in his famous study, Keywords, um, which is sort of like a philosophical dictionary, if you like, but it, it has an entry on charity. Um, and basically, Raymond Williams points to the doubleness of charity, uh, which has always been there, um, is, a, is a big presence in, in culture and still in practice today. Um, he says, you know, on the one hand, um, charity means um, perfect love. It means a feeling um, towards our fellow human beings. And on the other hand, um, we have that sort of um, saying, don't we, as cold as charity, the idea that it's an empty gesture um, and that an act of charity without the accompanying feeling is somehow worse than no act of charity at all, uh, because it, there's a risk of condescension, there's a risk of dehumanising the person who gets it, um, there's a risk that the motivation is wrong, that the person is giving um, charity for the wrong reasons, for example, to make themselves feel better about their role in the world. Um, and so charity has always had those two parts. You can sort of view it in, 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 in one way, as a, sort of, as a, as a form of love, and as an empty gesture. And I think a, a lot of the struggle in analysis of charity in literature and in attempts um, to reconcile you know, celebration of charity practitioners today with critiques of the sector lies in trying to bridge that gap uh, that's a very, very um, long-standing one, the doubleness of charity. So those of us who work in the humanities very, very often reach for Raymond Williams uh, because he, um, as it were, embedded that division. Uh, but I think it will be very, very interesting in future studies and in future work that, that reaches out from the humanities to the um, charity and philanthropy sector. I think finding ways of bridging that gap is the single most important thing that needs to be done, I would say. Yeah, and that I think that brings us on to something something else, a sort of topic that I that I wanted to cover, which is I guess less about the content of what um the study of literature has to tell us about charity and and more about the uh the sort of mechanics i guess of how you ensure that that um 
uh, that area of academic research actually feeds in to to the overall study because I think I mean certainly the the academic study of philanthropy and charity is odd because by its nature it is highly cross-disciplinary because charity and philanthropy isn't you know it covers lots of different things from the economic to the uh, sort of political science to the psychological and, and and many more do you do you feel at the moment as though um the the point of view of sort of literature and the humanities is um slightly lacking at that table um i think it possibly yeah i i, I would say that um and i think also that most uh, literary study or you know humanities study of, of charity tends to incline towards the critical side I mean that you know the critique side it's it, it's very rare to find um, defenses of charity and philanthropy among humanities scholars who are working on on the topic I would say which is which is a bit of a shame um, and at the very without without needing to take sides on the matter um, as I've cited there is a surprising there's a surprising number of sort of novels and, and poems that sort of defend charity in, in very, very interesting ways. I think the, the, the Wordsworthian defence is interesting, not unproblematic, but it, it's worth sort of taking more seriously than perhaps has been done in the, in the past. And there are various other um, authors, too, who present very sort of particular psychological takes on what happens during an act of charity. And I think it's really worth bringing serious attention to those approaches into the, the critical debate, certainly, because they're, they're a good way of the imaginative um, focus of literary studies is a good way of bridging, of bridging the gap um, that I was describing earlier, that sort of imaginative attention to it, which is complicated. Um, and certainly in terms of bringing the, the sort of viewpoint of literature and the humanities to the overall study of, of philanthropy, I guess that solves part of the problem. How how then, you know, on top of that or separately, do you think that, that literature and humanities can can do more to inform practice? Because it strikes me that there's that, you know, there's a whole other question of how all study or academic study of philanthropy and charity informs practice. But in the particular case of, of the humanities and literature... I think I think it can help in in numerous ways. Um, I think I think it can help by um, reminding practitioners of the long history of arguing about charity um, on sort of all sides of the debate. Um, I think it can help by bringing some of the major themes that literature has addressed over the years. Uh, into discussion, such as um, the theme of, of, of telescopic philanthropy, um, the psychology of charity, um, the, some of the risks involved in um, misdirected charity, the sort of the tension between high philosophy and individual practice um, that I've that I've been explaining. Um, so I think it's worth putting some of those paradigms out there. But I think literature is also very useful for. Um, considering the narratives that uh, charity involves as well. And I think this would be useful and interesting for practitioners. Um, again, when I look at 18th century literature, um, there are certain types of narrative that emerge. Um, for example, in a, there are several novels, again, I'm thinking of Jane Austen here, um, there are some novels where charity is just a kind of very, very incidental feature to the plot, where rich characters just go out and give food and lessons or help of some form to people who need it um, in order to maintain the status quo. 
Um, so that's one of the stories that sort of um, narratives about charity can tell. The idea that charity just sort of patches things up, or, you know, this is a critique, really, that charity can just sort of patch things up without really changing society very radically. Uh, but then there are other narratives where charity is given to individual characters and it completely transforms their lives. Um, Henry Fielding's novel, Tom Jones, um, A Foundling, is an example of that, um, where over a very, very long story and many adventures, um, charity given to somebody uh, completely transforms the way um, they live their life for the better, um, with some challenges uh, along the way. And there are also sort of more gothic narratives of charity, which are interesting, which shows that if you don't get your charity quite right, um, you can end up creating inadvertent sort of bad consequences for the people you're trying to help. Um, and so these, these stories can really sort of tie in with big policy um, perspectives on, on the charity sector, uh, I think. Um, and lastly, I would say that the study of um, literature can really help with charity communications um, as well. Because um, charity, uh, literature about charity focalises um, above all, you know, it can kind of summon and direct emotion on behalf of the reader and the viewer. Um, and I always, I always think of charitable publicity when I read these novels, when I read these poems, um, because the literature reminds us that I think there are several very, very powerful images of charity which really make people kind of get up and pay attention and actually do something, um, which is why charitable publicity uses um, particular emotive images, for in particular sort of images of um, um, suffering uh, children, um, particularly emotive scenes, suffering animals, suffering individuals. Um, and I think that speaks back to the great truth that a focus on uh, one particular person, one particular fellow human being, um, can be more effective as a way of galvanizing charity and philanthropy than an abstracted consideration of a group of people that doesn't speak to the feelings in quite the same way. So I think that the humanities are particularly good for examining how emotion is bound up in charity and philanthropy and how emotion can be cultivated, can even be directed um, and can be misdirected. Um, and, and again, I come back to the fact that I find the 18th century and romantic period so useful in this respect because really its main uh, focus was on the summoning and, and direction of emotion. That's what the literature of sensibility was about. Uh, it's very what a great many romantic poems are about. Um, and that is still what charitable publicity is about. It's trying to engage with people's emotion in order to get them to do things at a very basic level. So um, I think taking some of the lessons of literature, some of the lessons of historic art forms as well, um, can still be very, very valuable for thinking about how images of charity work and how they don't work as well. Well, I, I, that's, yeah, that's, I think, a really uh, great sort of summary of various different ways in which the, the connection between, between literature and practice could really bring benefits. And I think brings us neatly to almost to a close. But I, had, I just wanted to ask you kind of as a, as a final thought, given what you said then, what, what would you recommend or suggest as, uh, you know, a book or poem or, or plays or a number of them that you think 
if a practitioner who's heard this and thinks, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. I should definitely go and find out some more literature about charity. Where would you recommend they start? Well, first of all, it's useful to start just with with quite an obscure one. Um, this is something that came my way at the, the, the Charity Commission, actually. Um, it might be useful for practitioners to know that um, the, chari- the list of charitable purposes um, that's still in, in law today um, has its sort of origin, or, or rather can be seen, in a work of medieval literature, the um, 14th century um, poem Piers Plowman, um, which in sort of part seven um, features a list of things you can do that the church would consider charitable. Uh, and many of them are very practic- practical, uh, mending roads, um, um, paying off people's debts, getting people out of prison, uh, providing scholars to go to school. Um, and it corresponds surprisingly closely with the famous list of charitable purposes in the 1601 Act of Elizabeth which many charity practitioners will know, uh, and which is still really the guiding spirit of charity legislation today. Um, So that's just an interesting piece of trivia uh, that's quite useful to remind people quite how far back um, what we do in in the charity sector today goes and its connection with an imaginative work of literature as well. Um, I think the telescopic philanthropy chapter in Bleak House is invaluable. It goes into quite some detail about that tension between whether we should look at what's immediately around us or whether we should focus on big projects um, in other parts of the world. And the psychology of that in the novel is absolutely fascinating. And I think people should also read um, two twin poems by William Blake, another famous romantic poet, in his collection, Songs of Innocence and of Experience. Now, the two poems are called Holy Thursday, um, and they are, the two poems are alternative takes on charity in the late 18th century, as William Blake saw it. And there's an innocent version, which celebrates charity um, and sees it as a, a godly act something that we should do, something that makes us feel better, um, um, something that suggests that we're getting it right and and that we should celebrate acts of charity and the people who do it. Um, And it ends with a charming line, cherish pity lest you drive an angel from your door um, about the fact that you should look after the people you encounter on the street um, in everyday life. Your instinct Uh, should be to give, to help, to protect people. That's the innocent version. Um, And then there's the experience version of Holy Thursday, which gives you the other side, and it gives you a very stinging, quite modern critique of charity. I'll just read out the lines. Is this a holy thing to see in a rich and fruitful land, babes reduced to misery, fed with cold and usurious hand? And that is saying that the fact that charity is necessary is something to be angry about and something to be deplored. So do not uh, get too self-satisfied about charity because the fact that there are people who need it um, is something that should be deplored, not celebrated. Uh, And that really is at the root of the critique of charity and philanthropy that we are still dealing with today. 
And the reason that practitioners should read both versions is that for Blake, innocence, the innocent, um, optimistic way of looking at our world and the experienced, more cynical way of looking at our world and looking at charity and philanthropy are both necessary and they both prop each other up. And it is necessary to keep that double consciousness in your mind at all times in order to have a, a rounded picture of charity and philanthropy. And I think it would serve as a very useful um, guide and corrective to um, the policy debate about charity and philanthropy. So those two Holy Thursday poems by William Blake, read them both. What a great place to leave it. I was not aware of, of both the, the twin poems there, and I absolutely will go away and, and read those, and I'm, I'm sure many other people will uh, too. Um, it just, just remains to say thanks ever so much, Andrew, for coming on the podcast. It's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for asking me. I've really enjoyed it. Excellent. And uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, as and when your, your work kind of progresses and certainly at the point where, you know, it's, it's uh, coalesced into a book, maybe we'll get you back on and we can uh, kind of pick up on some of these things and see whether we're still revisiting all the same old themes. I'd really like that. Great. Well, thanks again to Andrew for coming on the podcast. Um, obviously, we t- talked about uh, quite a lot of different uh, books and things there that got referenced. So I will put links to as many of those as possible in the show notes so that you can follow them if you're interested. Um, if you're interested more broadly in issues to do with philanthropy and civil society, obviously check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis, or particularly if you're interested more in things around sort of literature and history and writings about philanthropy, I've also got another Twitter account at Philiteracy, um, where I kind of uh, tweet about that sort of thing in a not quite official work capacity, although it's all sort of the same subject area, isn't it, really? Um, if you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview, uh, please do drop me an email at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, it just remains to say like, subscribe, tell all your friends about the podcast, um, leave us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you pick these things up, because I'm sure that helps. And other than that, we'll see you next time. Bye! (laughs) 